it's true that everybody enjoys a good mystery, then you should really enjoy the first part of Ephesians chapter 3 because verses 1 to 13 tell us about a mystery. It's mentioned in verse 3, it's mentioned again in verse 4, and it's mentioned a third time in verse 9. And the mystery about which Paul writes here is the greatest mystery of all because we're told at the end of verse 4 that it is the mystery of Christ. Now, I suppose if I stuck to the pattern of a mystery, I would leave you in suspense till the end of the message. But I think it's fitting that I tell you a little about what the mystery is from the outset so that you can follow the flow through the the passage. Uh, the, The mystery is essentially the message Paul preached. In fact, in Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 19, Paul makes reference to the mystery of the gospel. And so essentially the mystery is the gospel. But in chapter 3, in a little more detail, Paul tells us what the mystery is in his message. And to help us see that, I'd like us to note six things that he emphasizes about the mystery in verses 1 to 13. The main character, the method, the meaning, the ministry, the manifestation, and the motivation. First of all, the main character, verse 1. For this reason I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles... Now, this is one of those chapters where you start reading in verse 1 and you get down to about verse 5 and you realize that you've lost the connection. So you go back to verse 1 and you start reading again and you get down to verse 5 and you realize that you're a little confused. And the reason is because this is a confusing passage. Paul starts out in verse 1. He gives us the subject of the sentence. He gives us a couple modifying clauses. And then as we read down through the chapter, we never find the verb. He never finishes the sentence. He says, for this reason, I, Paul, and we don't read anything else until we get to verse 14. And there he starts the sentence over again. He says, for this reason, I bow my knees before the Father. Now, what does that tell us? That tells us that Paul's intention was to pray. For this reason, on the basis of what I just told you in chapter 2, that God has brought you out of death into life because he has brought you from being foreigners to being part of the family of God, for this reason, I want to pray for you. But what happens? Between verses 1 and verses 14, Paul goes off on a tangent. He digresses. You ever been there when you prayed? Start to pray and you digress, you go on a tangent. That's what he does here. You say, well, what is it that sent him off on the tangent? Well, the thing that sent him off on the tangent is the subject of the sentence. He doesn't say, I bow my knees, as he does in verse 14. He says, I, Paul, and he sort of reintroduces himself. And in the process of reintroducing himself, he seems to remind himself that he is the main character in the mystery as far as it pertains to the Gentiles. And so he wants to add a little more before he finally does go to prayer. And he tells us two phrases about himself in verse 1. The first is, he says, I am the prisoner of Christ Jesus. Now, Paul is writing this letter from Rome. He is under house arrest, awaiting his trial. You can read about that in Acts chapter 28. But what's interesting is that Paul doesn't say, I'm the prisoner of Caesar. In fact, he never says that in any of his writings. Instead, he says, I am the prisoner of Christ Jesus. Now, why does he say that? Well, I think Paul says that because he recognized that the one who determined his circumstances was not Caesar. 
The one who had the final say about him was not Caesar. The one who was determining the duration of his confinement was not Caesar. It was Jesus Christ. And I think there's a very important lesson for us in that. Paul was chained to a Roman soldier. What are your circumstances? Maybe you're involved in a difficult marriage. Maybe you have some physical handicap or some physical illness. Maybe your circumstances are challenging right now. I wonder if you have ever gotten to the point where you have said, I am a dentist for Jesus Christ. I am a custodian for Jesus Christ. I am unemployed for Jesus Christ. I am a single parent for Jesus Christ. I am a cancer patient for Jesus Christ. You see, we need to learn like Paul did that the Lord is in control of our circumstances. I sometimes get frustrated when I hear Christians worrying and all anxious about what today's political powers are doing in the world. We need to get the faith of Paul who understood that Caesar was not ultimately in control. Jesus was. And so Paul says, I am the prisoner of Christ Jesus. And then he adds a second phrase, and that is, for the sake of you Gentiles. And his primary meaning behind this phrase is that the reason I'm in prison is because of you. Paul is in prison because he preached the message that he talked about at the end of chapter 2. If he had preached a Jews-only message he'd still be on the streets. But he took his message to the Gentiles, and that's why he was imprisoned. In fact, take, take your Bible for a moment and look back at Acts chapter 21, where it describes Paul's arrest. Acts chapter 21, verse 27, says at the end of that verse that Jews from Asia began to stir up all the multitude, and they laid hands on Paul, crying out, Men of Israel, come to our aid. This is the man who preaches to all men everywhere against our people and the law and this place. What was the accusation against Paul? He preaches against our people, the Jews. He preaches against the law. And he preaches against this place, which was the temple. Now, was Paul guilty of that? Yes, he was. How did he preach against the Jewish people? Well, the message we saw in Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 15 was that Jew and Gentile were brought together into one new man. How did he preach against the law? Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 14, he said the law was the barrier that Christ has broken down. And how did he preach against the temple? He said in Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 21 that we the church are now the temple of God. And so he was preaching this message to Gentile and Jew, and it didn't go over well with the Jews. In fact, if you look while you're there at Acts chapter 22, it describes his defense before the people, and he basically gives his testimony, and when he gets down to verse 21, notice, he says, And Christ said to me, Go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. And they listened to him up to this statement, and then they raised their voices and said, Away with such a fellow from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live. And as they were crying out and throwing off their coats and tossing dust in the air, they listened to Paul until he said, God told me to go to the Gentiles. And then they said, This guy should die. And they got really upset. They started throwing dirt in the air. That's how you know you're upset when you do that. What do you mean God told you to go to the Gentiles? Don't you know that God is a Jewish God? 
And they arrested Paul for that. And so he says, I am the prisoner of Christ Jesus for the sake of the Gentiles. That's why he's in prison. But when we come back to Ephesians chapter 3, I think there's a secondary meaning here. And that is that Paul is saying, I am the prisoner of Christ Jesus for the benefit of you Gentiles. For the sake of you Gentiles in that you are benefiting from my imprisonment. Now, I'm not sure how much Paul understood this. In Philippians chapter 1, he said that his circumstances in prison had turned out for the greater progress of the gospel. On this occasion, Paul's in prison. I don't know if he fully understands it, but he really accomplished his greatest accomplishment for the Gentiles while he was in prison. Because what did Paul do while he was in prison? He wrote most of the letters in the New Testament. And so he's in prison, but he's also accomplishing something that is for the benefit of the Gentiles and for our benefit today. And I, I kind of, the way I envision Paul, he seems like the kind of guy that if he had never been confined, he would have continued going and going and preaching and traveling and going everywhere and may have never settled down enough to actually write the letters that he wrote. And so he was in prison because of the Gentiles. He was also in prison for their sake. He wrote these letters that we still enjoy today. That's the main character. Second thing we want to see is the method, verses 2 and 3. How did Paul discover the mystery? Notice, if indeed, or a better translation would be, since you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace which was given to me for you, that by revelation there was made known to me the mystery as I wrote before in brief. How did Paul discover the mystery? He says in verse 2, it was given to me. And then he goes on to explain both why it was given to him and how it was given to him. First of all, he tells us why it was given to him. Notice verse 2. He says, it was given to me as a stewardship. Now, in that culture, a steward was a servant who was put in charge of managing his master's property. A steward didn't own the property that was entrusted to him, but he was responsible to take care of it. And Paul says, this mystery was given to me as a steward. Now, a steward was somebody who had responsibility. And so Paul saw his ministry as a responsibility that he had to answer to God for, which tells me that his ministry was not an option. Paul wasn't saying, I'm going to preach for a few years, and then I'll probably go back to school and, and uh, check out some of my other interests. He was obligated to preach the gospel because it was a stewardship. He makes that very clear in 1 Corinthians chapter 9 and verse 16 where he says, For if I preach the gospel, I have nothing to boast of, for I am under compulsion. For woe is me if I preach not the gospel. For if I do this voluntarily, I have a reward, but if against my will, I have a stewardship entrusted to me. Paul didn't preach just when he felt like it. He preached even when he didn't feel like it. Because he was a steward. And a steward doesn't do what he wants to do. A steward do, does what his master wants him to do. In 1 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 1, he put it this way. He said, let a man regard us in this manner as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. I wonder if we fully understand our stewardship. See, at one time, the gospel was a mystery to us. But God, by His Spirit, has made that understandable. And with increased understanding comes increased responsibility for us to share that with others. That's a stewardship. That's the way Paul saw his ministry. And that's why God gave him this revelation. 
Secondly, he tells us how God gave him uh, this, the revelation of this mystery, and, and that's in verse 3. He says, it was made known to me by revelation. Paul explains that in Galatians chapter 1, verses 11 and 12. He says, the gospel which was preached by me is not according to man, for I neither received it from man nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. Paul was taught the gospel personally by Jesus Christ. And he explains that in great detail in Galatians chapter 1 and 2. In fact, he tells us there that when he was converted on the Damascus Road, he didn't immediately go and talk to the other apostles. In fact, he didn't go to Jerusalem until three years later. And when he did go on that occasion, he says, I only talked to two people, James, the Lord's brother, and Peter, and we didn't talk about doctrine. It wasn't until 14 years after his conversion that Paul went up to Jerusalem. He sat down with the other apostles and they compared notes. And when they did, he says in Galatians 2.6, they added nothing to me. Even though they had walked with Jesus for three and a half years, Paul knew and understood everything that they did. There's a classic example of that in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 where Paul describes the Lord's Supper. And here's what he says in verses 23 and 24. The Lord Jesus, in the night in which he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Now, how did Paul know how Jesus picked up the bread and what he said when he did so? Did the other apostles tell him? No. If you read in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul prefaces that statement with this statement. He said, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus in the night in which he was betrayed took bread. He got it by revelation from Jesus Christ. Now imagine what it was like for the other apostles when they gathered 14 years after Paul's conversion. They gather in Jerusalem. How amazed they must have been to listen to Paul. This guy who was a persecutor of the church now knows the same doctrines that they were taught by Jesus, but not only that, he knows the same events that they have gone through and experienced in their lives. And their response was, he's an apostle. And they concluded the same thing that Paul tells us here, and that is he received this by revelation. And so the method by which he discovered the mystery is that it was given to him as a stewardship by revelation. And then if you notice the end of verse 3, he says, as I wrote before in brief. Paul says, I already mentioned this. And if you go back to chapter 1 and verse 9, you'll see there that he makes reference to the mystery of God's will, which is the consummation of everything in Jesus Christ. He made a brief reference to it in chapter 1. Now he's going to describe it further here in chapter 3. And we move on to see that when we see the meaning of the mystery in verses 4 to 6. Notice, And by referring to this, when you read, you can understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which in other generations was not made known to the sons of men, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets in the Spirit. Here we see why Paul uses the word mystery. Because it was something that was not known in other generations, but has now been made known to us today. In fact, in verse 9, he spells it out more specifically, and he says... For ages it has been hidden in God. Something has been hidden in God, it's now been revealed. You say, well, what is he talking about? 
What is it that had been hidden for ages but has now been revealed? Well, he spells it out in verse 6. To be specific, that the Gentiles are fellow heirs and fellow members of the body and fellow partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. The mystery has to do with the Gentiles. And Paul says three things about the Gentiles, and in the Greek he uses the same prefix on all these words. It's the prefix soon, which means together with. He says the Gentiles are fellow heirs of the same blessing, fellow members of the same body, and fellow partakers of the same promise. You say, well, why is that a mystery? I mean, wasn't that revealed in the Old Testament? I mean, you can read in the Old Testament, you'll find that in the Abrahamic covenant, it says that all the families of the earth will be blessed. We read in the Old Testament that the Messiah would receive the nations as an inheritance, that Israel would be a light to the Gentiles, that one day all the nations would make a pilgrimage to Jerusalem and actually flow to Jerusalem like a river. You say, doesn't the Old Testament talk about the blessings to the Gentiles? Yes. But the mystery is not that the Gentiles would be blessed. The mystery is that God would discontinue his program with with Israel and start a whole new entity, which is the body of Christ. And in that new entity, the church, Jew and Gentile would be on common ground in one body as one new man, fellow heirs, fellow members, fellow partakers. You don't read about that in the Old Testament. It was a mystery up until this time when it was revealed. And so the meaning of the mystery is the complete union of both Jews and Gentiles with each other through their union with Christ. Now before we move on, let me add a footnote. Because there's a line of teaching called ultra-dispensationalism. And if you're not familiar with that, you can just take a brief nap while I I cover this. But it's a teaching that is built upon the premise that Paul received revelation that the other apostles didn't receive. That he was the one who understood this mystery, and therefore they were limited in their understanding, but Paul's the one that really had his act together. And as a result of that, they say, the only one we should really listen to or follow as the church is what Paul said. And we can rule out what everybody else said. But there's a problem with that. And the problem is that this is one of the primary passages they use to develop that position... And notice what Paul says in verse 5. Which in other generations was not made known to the sons of men as, as it has now been revealed to whom? To his holy apostles and prophets. Paul is not claiming a special revelation that only he had. This was a revelation that was made to all of Christ's apostles and even to the prophets in the New Testament church. Okay, we move on. You can wake up. We're moving on to, verse, to point 4. The ministry. Verses 7 and 8. He says, This mystery was revealed at the end of verse 6 through the gospel of which I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace which was given to me according to the working of His power. To me, the very least of all saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unfathomable riches of Christ. Here Paul talks about his ministry and he tells us six things about it. First of all, he tells us the recruitment. Who was responsible for Paul becoming a minister of the gospel? Well, Paul says at the beginning of verse 7, I was made a minister. For Paul, this was not an optional choice. He didn't volunteer. 
He was struck down by a light on the Damascus road. And he says in Acts chapter 26 and verse 16 that this is what Jesus said to him. Arise, stand on your feet. For this purpose I have appeared to you to appoint you a minister and a witness. God made him a minister. And I might add that God is still the one who is recruiting ministers today. You show me a minister who made himself a minister... And I'll show you someone who is doing harm to the cause of Christ. He's the one who recruits. He's the one who makes individuals ministers. Second thing, we see the reason. Why did God choose Paul? Look at the middle of verse 7. According to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me. God chose Paul for the same reason he chooses anybody else. And that's because of grace. Third thing we see is the resource. How did Paul accomplish the ministry? Notice the end of verse 7. According to the working of his power. God made Paul a minister by his grace, and he enabled him to carry out that ministry by his power. Now, isn't that nice to know? When God gives us responsibility, he also gives us the resources to accomplish that. Fourth thing, the requirement What was it in Paul that caused God to select him? Was he the most qualified? Was he the most intelligent? Was he voted most likely to succeed in his senior class? Notice what he says, verse 8. To me, the very least of all saints, this grace was given. Now, that's interesting. Paul creates a word here. He does this in several places, but he creates a word here that is really not very good proper Greek. He creates a word that would be similar to, to our word, leastest. It's bad Greek. But he wants to get the idea across. He actually creates a word that means less than the least, which doesn't make sense. But he's saying, he's trying to create the image that he had to look up to see the bottom. You take all the saints in the church, and Paul says, I am less than the least. I am the leastest. In other words, I don't have any requirements. I don't have any qualifications. But you know, in in the process of seeing Paul say this, we realize that he does have one qualification, and that is humility. And the thing that I recognize here, that he has been faithful in following the Lord Jesus. Because Jesus said in Matthew chapter 11, Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart. And James said in James 4, 6, God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And so the one and only requirement is humility. And God works through that. Fifth thing about his ministry is the responsibility. What was Paul called by God to do? Look at the end of verse 8. To preach to the Gentiles the unfathomable riches of Christ. What are the riches of Christ? He's been talking about them in the book of Ephesians. Redemption, forgiveness, adoption as sons, all spiritual blessings, our inheritance in heaven. What a job description. Paul says, he told me to take the riches of Christ and go out and offer them to people. Wow. God is pouring out all of his riches on people. And Paul says, I get the opportunity to share that. Notice the word unfathomable. That word literally means that which cannot be tracked out, that which cannot be traced, that which you cannot put a value upon. 
You see, we can have the riches of Christ. We can experience the riches of Christ. We can preach the riches of Christ, but we can never fully comprehend the riches of Christ because they are unfathomable. You know, I think this passage holds the key to Paul's evangelistic zeal because on one hand, he realized that a stewardship had been entrusted to him, but on the other hand, he realized that riches had been given to him. On one hand, he understood his obligation, but on the other hand, he appreciated his privilege. On one hand, he saw it as truth from God. On the other hand, he saw it as riches for mankind. And when we understand both of those things, it will be impossible to silence us in sharing the gospel with other people. Sixth thing about his ministry is the recipients. Who did Paul minister to? It's right there in verse 8. The Gentiles. In Romans chapter 11 and verse 13, Paul calls himself an apostle to the Gentiles. That was the focus of his ministry. And so there's Paul's ministry. He was recruited by God. His only requirement was that he was less than the least of all the saints. The only reason was God's grace. The resource was the power of God. His responsibility was to share the riches of Christ and the recipients were the Gentiles. Which brings us to our fifth point, and that is the manifestation of the mystery, verses 9 to 12. Notice verse 9. And to bring to light what is the administration of the mystery, which for ages has been hidden in God, who created all things. The goal of Paul's preaching was not to just get a whole bunch of Gentiles saved. The ultimate goal of his ministry is recorded here. He wants all men to see the mystery. He wants this mystery to come to light. And what is the mystery again? The mystery is that we're fellow heirs, fellow members, fellow partakers. So how will men see the mystery? How will it come to light? Well, that's easy. Through the unity of the body of Christ. When we as the church, Jew and Gentile, man and woman, slave and free, black and white, rich and poor, love each other as we ought to in the body of Christ, we are bringing to light the mystery. That was Paul's prayer in John chapter 17, that we might be one. And then Jesus added that the world might know that God has sent me. How will the world know the reality of the gospel when we live it out in the church, in unity? And you know what's interesting? Not only will the world know when that happens, look at verse 10. In order that the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known through the church to the rulers and authorities in heavenly places. Who are the rulers and authorities in heavenly places? Those are the angels. We'll read more about that in chapter 6 and verse 12. This is really interesting. We can't see the angels, but guess what? They can see us. And we are graduate school for the angels. They are watching the church. In fact, we know they're very interested because 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 12 says they long to look into the gospel. They are watching the church and they are discovering some things through the church and he tells us the thing they are discovering is the wisdom of God. They're looking at the church and they're saying, wow, look at that. Jews and Gentiles together, united, hugging each other. Blacks and whites together in the same church, fellowshipping together. Wow! Look at the wisdom of God. 
That word manifold wisdom of God is the literal word multicolored. It's the word used in the Septuagint to describe Joseph's coat of many colors. And I think that's fitting. Because the angels ought to look on and they see a multicultural, multicolored church united. And they realize the multicolored wisdom of God to bring that about. Look at verse 11. This was in accordance with the eternal purpose which he carried out in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and confident access through faith in him. As the angels view the church, they realize that this is all part of God's eternal plan. And I can imagine them scratching their angel heads and saying, Ah, now I see. That's why Jesus had to become a man. That's why Jesus had to die. It's through Jesus that they have access to the Father. It's through Jesus that they're united together. He is the one who has brought that about. You know, I have to pause here and wonder what the angels are discovering as they view our church. Whether we are truly reflecting the multicolored wisdom of God. And the way that happens is unity. When the barriers are all broken down, and when we understand the idea of genuine fellowship in the body of Christ. This passage also tells me that Christianity is not just a personal relationship between me and Jesus. It's not just vertical, it's horizontal. It's got to happen between me and the Lord, and it's got to happen between me and my brothers and sisters. And that ought to be something not only that I talk about, but something that I show because the angels are watching. God didn't tell the angels the mystery. He told Paul the mystery and the other apostles. They preached it to the Gentiles. Out of that preaching, the church was established... And the angels are up in heaven looking down and they're getting clues to the mystery by watching us. Now, that's an interesting cycle, isn't it? God sent the message down to Paul. It was preached to the Gentiles. The church was formed. It's going back up to heaven so the angels understand. And when they see it, they say, wow, God is wise. And they worship him. Beautiful circle going on there. But there can be a break in that circle if we are not reflecting the unity that ought to be in the body of Christ. Last point, the motivation. Real, real simply in verse 13. Therefore I ask you not to lose heart at my tribulations on your behalf, for they are your glory. That's an interesting verse. It mentions tribulations and glory. That's a common theme in Scripture. That we have to go through suffering first, glory later. But what's interesting in this verse is, Paul says, I'm the one who's suffering... And you're getting the glory. Now that's interesting, isn't it? But that really reflects the theme that Paul has been talking about in this passage because there's unity in the body of Christ. And Paul says, it's all right. I'll suffer. You be glorified. Because we're all one in Christ. And what's especially interesting is Paul is a Jew in jail suffering so that Gentiles can be brought into the kingdom of God and experience the glory that he has for them an actual expression of the very thing he's talking about here. And the angels are looking on as Paul is saying this and saying, wow, God is wise. And what's also interesting is it tells us that Paul's 
was not, Paul was not caught up with concern about his own physical needs. He says in verse 13, I ask that you not lose heart at my tribulations. Who's he concerned about? He's concerned about them. See, when I understand the mystery of God and the unity in the body of Christ, my motivation is no longer selfish. My motivation should be others. And that's what we see in the Apostle Paul. I wonder how motivated we are. Would we suffer imprisonment so that others could hear the gospel of Christ? And in our chains, would we be more concerned about our own physical needs or the spiritual needs of others? Even others who were from a different, different culture, even others who have a different skin color, even others who used to be our enemies have said things about us. See, if we can't say that, then we need to learn a little more about the mystery of God. And we need to learn a little more about the grace of God. Because it's His grace that we have experienced that, that enables us to then be motivated by the needs and concerns of others. And remember, when we do so, the angels are watching. And God's glory, not just from us, but from them, is contingent upon how we respond.